You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis. This week, we'll hear how one chief executive got change done in his healthcare service. And then you have to make a decision as to what you do. So one Friday afternoon, I brought in 11 executives and fired them all. That changed again. Then it moved. But first, Andrew Whitty is the charismatic CEO of GlaxoSmithKline. He's taking on a company which has behaved badly in the past, as shown by a record $3 billion fine levied by the US government last year. But how much is he able, or willing, to change the culture of an industry which, as the BMJ has documented almost weekly, still has a way to go to meet what we would consider acceptable standards? Andrew Whitty joined Rebecca Coombs, BMJ Features Editor, in our studio for an extensive interview. That's been written up and is available on bmj.com, but here's an extract where he states how open he wants GSK to be with regard to clinical data. There are people who say the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating. Let's see what we get. And so people are saying, as well as the main study body, the study report, will we also get the appendices? Will we get to to be able to see the, the full data? Our intention is to, and, and the, the only caveat I would say here is that when people talk about the full portfolio, uh-huh. sometimes they mean slightly different things. No, so again, sure. no, I precision that. is yeah. really valuable. And yeah. over time, we need to make sure that we're all being precise in what that means. But in principle, mm-hmm. what we want to do is to, is to do two things. And I'm going to cover both things I announced in the last six months. In principle, we want to make available to any legitimate researcher who has a protocol and who is prepared to commit to publish, which I think is an entirely reasonable set of of commitments for us to expect, we will make available through a portal an anonymized patient-level data. So that is... And this is where you apply to a panel. You send your protocol. So the apply to a panel is not really... So the panel which should be um, announced in March. Yes. So we're very close to, again, the proof is in the pudding. Now you've promised that there'll be some independent... Very um, much. So totally arm's length. Yeah, is there anything um, more you can tell us about that today? Not today, but the principle is, we obviously recognise there's no point having a panel which you all say isn't credible. So GSK it has to have insiders, people in yeah, there who yeah. are not GSK insiders, who are arm's length, and it will be. And we should have that announced in March. Great. We should also have created and available in March a portal, a web portal, through which people can then access the data once they're given the green light by the panel. All we're going to be asking the panel to do on behalf actually of the patients, yeah. because I think, as I said at the at the speech at the Wellcome Trust, it's really important. We, we're talking about data that's been produced because patients were prepared to volunteer under the auspices of a legitimate clinical trial question and protocol. Absolutely, and yeah. And it's really important that we don't then kind of post-event say, well, oh, it's great we've got this data, but now we can do what we want with it. I think that would be a really bad, terrible thing for anybody sure. to do. So what the panel is requested to do is to say, okay, we are prepared to make that data available via the portal to any researcher who has a research question will provide the protocol to the panel to confirm that they have got a reasonable research question and a commitment that they will publish the results. That's all. And that the only basis on which the panel can say no or could say no is if the person says, give me your data, but I'm not going to share my protocol, which I think is why would you do that? 
or if they said, I'm not prepared to commit to publish, which again, why should we, why should anybody's data be made available in, in that basis? And to further cement trust, would it be possible for researchers to see that consent, that the, the, the limits of that consent that the patient signed? Because I think sometimes criticisms have been that patient consent is used as a bit of a fig leaf yeah, um, for, think, not re- yeah. for not releasing data. Yeah, no, I think so. But I think whether the consent, so I, so I don't think there's any reason why not. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. Um, Overall, the key when it comes to anything we present is we must redact any patient identifiable information, obviously. Mm -hmm. So to the extent to which that has to be dealt with, because the last thing we're going to do is produce any data which could somehow be used to triangulate patients, Mm -hmm. which is obviously critical. But beyond that, I see no reason why not. But I come back, actually, whether it's in the consent form or not, I think it's absolutely incontroversial that patients go into clinical trials because of what they think the question is in the clinical trial. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we should again, whether it says in the consent form or not, I think just the, I think it's a widely held, agreed view of trials mm-hmm. that people do these trials not to just randomly produce data which can be used for any purpose by anybody without any legitimate reason. I mean, imagine if we were talking about DNA samples. The idea that you gave a DNA sample in a trial, but then somebody gave those DNA samples to random investigators without any, without any check of whether or not they were going to use them for legitimate research purposes would be anathema, right? So I, I think, for me, there's no difference, actually, philosophically. We, I don't think this is a big issue. I think it simply says... We are very willing, and when we come to CSRs, emphasise again how willing, we're very willing to be held to account through transparency. Mm-hmm. Well, quid pro quo, if you, want to invest, if you want to interrogate that data, you need to commit to at least the same standard. Sure. And I, I don't think that's a completely... Because while this debate tends to have its, it, its kind of heat of the centre on the drug industry, we've got to remember that most research is done by academics and others. Sure. Actually. And so the the transparency debate can't be partial. It has to be okay. total and it has to incorporate everybody. So just to be clear, as a as a as a rule, you're intending to publish the, the, the CSRs as as well as the main study of the report, but also the appendices. Yes, yeah, so I, I'll go the, back to this because this is an issue no, on that the keeps CSR, coming back. So so I just wanted to I just wanted to cover off the yes, patient piece. Got that, yes. On the CSR, the intent is to publish everything. Okay. Now except for redacting patient identifiable information, okay, right? So question. the intent is to say, and, and so the key pieces are the appendices, the statistical analysis plan, those sorts of things. We think everything to do with the clinical, our, our intent, and you know, I can't rule out that as we get into the absolute detail, there may be, particularly as we go back in time, perhaps some of these things don't exist anymore. Sure. I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. But the intent is to be comprehensive, not partial. Right. That is the intent. Now, what we've promised to do is that we will publish the CSRs from when the drug is approved or discontinued. Uh So you will get both failed and successful drugs. We will um, go back over time and it will take we're just working out the exact detail. What we're going to do is um, we're going to create a, a specialised team, about 15 or 20 scientists, probably former employees of GSK have now retired, so we'll probably get, bring back some retirees, um, to work on a very... Because one of the issues here is, well, you know, how do you do all of this and the day job and everything else that organisation's trying to do? We're going to create a dedicated organisation with the sole job of going back and um, finding all these documents 
putting them together so that you can go to one trial and say, here's everything you need to see, all the way back to the creation of GSK. Now, that's going to take a little while because obviously the go... The, Can you talk about 2001 then? Yeah. yeah. So, yes, that's right. So yeah. what we will do immediately, because obviously it's much more of a push of a button, is any new drug or any discontinued drug from now on, will pop, that will be, you'll start seeing that very quickly. Going back is much more of a archival task it's sure. not impossible but it just takes time really important yeah exactly correct and yeah. what we're going to do so again i know some people say well are you really going to do it are you really going to spend the energy on we, we are so we we've scoped in the last few weeks we think it's about 15 people we need uh it will and the priority will be to start going backwards back to the creation of the company, and the priority will be the most heavily prescribed drugs first, mm -hmm. which again, I think is a reasonable way to prioritize that we should be saying, let's get the data out there for the things which are affecting the most people. Sure. But the intent is to be comprehensive again, so that whether it's however many months or maybe it's a year or two, I don't know how long it's going to take to do absolutely everything. Mm -hmm. But the intent is to then be comprehensive from the creation of GSK and comprehensive in the scope of the CSR, so to try and have as much as possible uh, out there in the public domain. And and that's what we're going to do. And that, you know, absolutely judges are, but we're going to do it. It won't be the end of the world. But people, why, why, why do these things sometimes become difficult to, to make? Why is this such a discussion point? Oftentimes because people are afraid of, you know, the unknown, actually. They're afraid, well, if we do this, what, ha you know, what could go wrong is often their motivation. And I think what we've been able to show in this, you know, if you change your price structure in Africa, only good things happen. Mm -hmm. If you liberate your IP and neglect your trial, only good things happen. I personally think if we're more transparent, only good things can happen. You know, my, my absolutely, absolute view is, you know what, if we've missed something in our analysis, it's got to be better for everybody for it to be spotted. Mm -hmm. now, I, I don't believe for a second there is any mal intent in any part of GSK. I honestly don't believe that. But I can't rule out that we sometimes get things wrong, make mistakes, or just look at data in a different way to other people. I mean, of course that's possible. So the idea that somebody else looks at our data and says, oh, we think you've missed a side effect, that's good. Because much better that we know and much better that the patients know than that we all go along not knowing. Equally, if somebody comes along and says, well, actually, this drug turns out, you, we think you've missed a, a way where this drug works beneficially. Mm -hmm. There's an indication somewhere buried in this data that you've missed and we ought to bring to life. Again, that's good. So I don't, I personally don't see this as having a lot of reason to be afraid, which is why, again, you know, we want to push forward and we're happy to, to do it as aggressively as we are. Since that interview, GSK has released data on Relenza, their flu drug, to the Cochrane collaboration. At the time of editing, Cochrane have found that the data has been extensively redacted and the two are in talks to sort out exactly what Cochrane require and GSK are willing to release. To keep updated, go to bmj.com slash open hyphen data, where we'll be keeping our campaign page up to date. Now, today was the Nuffield Trust's Health Summit, which brings together policymakers, clinicians and managers to discuss the future of service provision in the NHS. At the conference, Rebecca Coombs talked to Michael Dowling, President and CEO of the North Longshore Island Jewish Health System, 
a company which started off as two hospitals and now has grown to a health network with over 400 ambulatory care centres and employing 2,500 doctors. Michael Dowling, a really interesting presentation, thanks very much. Um, I wanted to tell us about some of the key features of the health system that you lead in New York. Some great figures that were coming out there. Uh, uh, yeah, we didn't, get in, didn't have enough time to go into the overall description, of course, but it's a very, very large integrated system, so I not only have hospitals, I have the whole continuum of care. So I have hospitals, long-term care facilities, home care, ambulatory outpatient services, medical transport system, um, um, behavioral health, substance abuse programs, um, as well as uh, children's hospitals. So I've got the full continuum of care. So irrespective of what kind of a service that a person needs, I either have it or I can easily contract for it. Mm -hmm. So it's different than when I was sitting in the meetings here in the last day and a half and people just was talking, were talking about hospitals. Mm -hmm. Everything was just about hospitals. But to me, hospitals are only one piece of the whole health system. And they're not the most important piece going forward. I think you said your goal was to make sure that 75% of care was provided outside of hospital. Yes. Presently it's 50-50. So I, you're on your way. I'm on my way, yes. And, and this is like a five to a ten year plan. Uh, a lot of people that are in hospitals uh, should not be in hospitals. Now, hospitals are great places for people who should be there. And a lot of great work is done in hospitals, so I don't want to give the impressions that hospitals are bad places. They're not the great places for people who shouldn't be in them. And many people end up in hospitals because there is no alternative for them to go for their services. So the, ch the challenge is to create that alternative. Mm -hmm. And that's what we have been doing for quite a number of years. And tell me how, how one leads an organisation like that. You said that you were the, the only truly integrated health system right. on the, the eastern seaboard of the right, States. Right, right. What do you mean by that? And, and, and tell well, me how, all, you, how, how you managed that. Well, all of the pieces of the organisation um, all completely work together. So we've consolidated all of the various support functions of the organisation. So I mentioned that we have one finance department rather than one time there was a finance department in every place. Mm -hmm. There's one finance department, there's one purchasing department. So when we purchase goods and services, each place doesn't do it. It's all done centrally. Uh, one central quality oversight mm -hmm. structure so that the quality metrics across the organization and the service metrics and the financial metrics are all the same. Mm -hmm. So everybody is held accountable to the same set of objectives. Um, everybody works completely together to make the whole thing successful. So one hospital cannot be successful at the expense of another. So they're forced to work together and you hire the right people that want to do that kind of integration. I want to ask you just, just finally about you know, the, what were the main lessons for the NHS and it was interesting there was a, there was a, there was a, a question um, from the floor yeah. about how in the UK um, the argument against integrated care um, is that you know, hospitals will swallow the money up. Since I don't run just hospitals and I run the whole system, um, I wouldn't want my hospitals to swallow everything up because I will lose. I would be putting people in all of my ambulatory sites and in my home care mm -hmm. since I have the whole continuum. This is why you just don't have hospitals alone doing it. Mm -hmm. This is why integrated care is hospitals plus everything else. 
So do you think that's an argument for the UK government to combine health and social services? I would combine the whole full continuum of care mm -hmm. and create single leadership over them mm -hmm. and say you are responsible for, in this region, the hospitals, the ambulatory sites, and you have the freedom to create the locations of care that don't exist. That's another key lesson is you have to have the freedom to be able to do it. I can't be regulated to the point where somebody says, well, you can't open up an ambulatory site down the street. That's, that's my role. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't, and I said this, you can micromanage from the top, from the government top. Because um, there is a tendency for regulators to, um, to try to over micromanage, not exactly know what they're doing, um, over regulate, um, set up commission after commission after commission, instead of putting the responsibility right where the responsibility should be. Mm -hmm. Pick the right people. Mm -hmm. And in my view is no, nobody in my organization is entitled, entitled to their jobs. Nobody has tenure. I've been CEO 10 years. I was chief operating officer for five years. Place was small, two hospitals, one hospital trying to merge with another hospital. And uh, some of the mergers were like vicious. Uh, we had a number of hospitals that like they swore that they would fall on the sword before mm -hmm. they would talk to the other hospital. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, you work on it, you work on it, you convince them. And then at the end of the day, with what two of our big places um, that we wanted to bring together, and it was like horrifically difficult. It was like a, like tribal warfare, warfare in Afghanistan. It was like unbelievable. And then you have to make a decision as to what you do. So one Friday afternoon, I brought in 11 executives and fired them all. That changed again. Then it moved. At a, certain, at a certain point, you don't want to be on the team. You're not on the team. And one of them, who uh, was the top guy at the other hospital, uh, I gave him two hours to get out. He asked me, so how much time do I have? I said, until four o'clock. I locked his computer, escorted him out. My attitude is, get the hell out of here. I've given you a year to get your act together. You don't want to work here? That's fine. I'm obliging you. Get the hell out. And with that, you know, usually it's tough. In that particular day, it was a good day for me. I went home happy as I got rid of some real assholes. Excuse the expression. <laughs> I just wonder if you could do that contractually in the NHS. Well, I guess the your sort of uh, subtext there is that um, you think that the NHS is probably quite complacent. With yes, you can tolerate. People are not entitlement entitled to employment. I'm a big believer in that. You're not entitled to a job. You earn it. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with another roundtable from the Nuffield Conference. After Francis, what next? Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com. <laughs>